0: Well, thank you for once again joining me. I'm your host, Randy Duncan. We are working our way through the book of Genesis. And in this episode, we are going to wrap up chapter 3. In the last episode, we discussed Adam and Eve's eyes being opened and what that entailed, as well as God's questioning of the both of them. And we discussed how both Adam and Eve placed the blame on someone else and that neither of them took responsibility for their actions. And we ended with verses 12 and 13 where God is questioning Adam and Eve, and and we hear their responses. And just as a reminder, uh, verse 12 tells us that the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And again, we discussed this in the previous episode, and so now we're going to pick up the scene here in verse 14, where God now turns his attention from Adam and Eve to Satan. So verses 14 and 15 read, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." In verse 14, it's interesting that God questioned Adam and Eve and gave them an opportunity to respond and to explain, but with Satan, he didn't do that. He gets straight to the punishment. Notice how God tells the serpent that as part of its punishment, that on its belly it shall go and dust it shall eat. Now, some people take this to imply that prior to his punishment, that the serpent didn't go around on its belly, meaning that it may have walked upright and that the serpent was not always a snake. I mean, some even say that prior to this punishment, that the serpent was actually more like or more akin to a dragon. And they say that that's perhaps where we get tales and legends of dragons. But that phrase, you know, on your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat. If we look at Psalm 44:25, it says that for our soul is bowed down to the dust, our bellies cling to the ground. And in that psalm, just as here in Genesis chapter 3, it's speaking of abject or complete humiliation, just absolute and total defeat. And in ancient societies, that, quote, dust in the mouth, that was also a reference to the grave, as dirt and dust fills the mouth of a corpse. And so we should perhaps take this dust shall you eat as referring to an absolute state of humility as well as death you know another consequence that cursing the serpent may have had was to dethrone the serpent as a deity meaning the serpent was worshipped in many pagan societies um, like egypt for example uh, where the serpent was actually represented on the headdress or uh, the crown that was worn by pharaoh and so this was another way for god to sort of dethrone another quote god of the ancient world incidentally um, in exodus where God sends the 10 plagues upon Egypt, have you ever noticed that I think uh, maybe 9 out of the 10 plagues, God uses the, quote, gods of Egypt as his instruments of judgment? And so what I mean is, for example, when we look at the diseased cattle, this was to demonstrate that the Egyptian gods associated with bulls and cows were in fact not gods. The same thing with the ninth plague, the, the darkness. It was to demonstrate that the Egyptian sun and moon gods were not God. Again, so if you look at the ten plagues of Egypt, nine of them were associated with Egyptian nature gods. And all of that reinforces the idea taught in Genesis that God alone is God and that he alone created and rules over nature. So here, with the humiliation of the serpent, we see once again that God demystifies nature or an object of nature and removes it from an object of worship, humbling it to its rightful place in the created order, making the point, once again, that He is the one true God. Isaiah 45.5 says that I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And that brings us to verse 15, one of the most discussed and perhaps one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. So I want to reread verse 15. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now that word enmity, if you look it up in an English dictionary, it simply means to be actively opposed or hostile to someone. But in the Hebrew, this word is avah. Which means to be an adversary or an enemy of someone. To persecute them as an enemy. To hate them. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Well, who is the you here? Remember who God is talking to here. He's talking to Satan. He's telling Satan that there will be a va, that hate between Satan and the woman. And between who else? Between his offspring and her offspring. And God tells Satan that he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. The he here is referring to the eventual offspring of the woman, and it's clearly a reference to the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ. And so here we have the plot of the rest of the Bible the battle between good and evil, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. I mean, even though Christ will overcome Satan, as referenced by the bruise to the head, Christ also will be wounded, as referenced by the bruise to the heel. However, One of those is a fatal wound. The other one is not. You know, some people feel that the most important thought is not the ultimate victory that would come, but more so the long continued struggle that would ensue. And this is what we see in the rest of the Bible, a long and continued struggle until at last God's word would come to fruition in the person and victory of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. In other words, the triumph of good over evil. So this verse describes two offspring or two descendants. Some of the Bible translations will say the seed of the woman, but it's describing, again, two descendants, the descendants of Satan and the descendants of the woman. Humanity is now divided into two communities, those who love God and the reprobate, who love themselves. So how do we identify who is who? Well, Jesus gave us a hint in John chapter 8 when he said, if God were your father you would love me. And why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Whosoever is of God, hears the words of God. And the reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Now, I would love to tell you that I could add to what Jesus said here and have some insight in order to make it more clear. But the reality is, I just can't. I can't make it any clearer than Jesus did right here in distinguishing the children of God from the children of Satan. So again, what's he saying? He's like, look, if, if God were your father, you would love me he says, why don't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't bear to hear my word because you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. The reason why you don't hear the word of God is because you are not of God. And the harsh reality is that every one of us has to determine for ourselves, are we a child of God or not? Your family can't choose for you. Your friends can't choose for you. You have to make that decision for yourself. John 1 tells us, But to all who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we move to verse 16. Verse 16 reads, And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary or towards your husband that he shall rule over you. Notice here that God didn't tell Eve that he would cause pain during childbirth, but that he would multiply it, suggesting that childbirth would have involved some level of pain already. But just as Adam will now endure physical pain over his toil of the land, so Eve's pain and sorrow in childbirth will be multiplied. But that sorrow was soon forgotten once the baby has arrived, as you mothers will know. And John 16:21 even tells us, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's interesting, there's great pain in delivering life. I wonder how much greater the pain is in delivering eternal life. And how Jesus can surely relate to that. You know, it was the philosopher and theologian Anselm who had some brilliant insight when he wrote that, look, it's extremely appropriate that just as the sin of mankind and the cause of our damnation originated from a woman, then correspondingly the medicine of our sin and the cause of our salvation should also be born of a woman. And in saying that, he was obviously referencing Mary, the mother of Jesus. In the second part of God's punishment to Eve says that her desire will be contrary or towards your husband and he shall rule over you. In our modern society, which is so focused on equality, you can imagine how this verse goes over with some folks. And so it's obviously garnered a lot of attention. But there seems to be at least two different takes on this verse. One option is that God simply punishes Eve. And has her now submissive to Adam because she was the one who was deceived. And now Adam is to be the leader. But another option is found in doing a word study of the Hebrew word here that's used for desire. So when God tells Eve her desire will be to her husband, the problem is that this Hebrew word for desire is only used two other times in the entire Old Testament. But the bottom line is, it can also suggest that a woman's desire which renders her dependent upon man, is her maternal instinct. In other words, her desire to have children will make her more vulnerable to man and more dependent upon the man who does not have that same level of paternal instinct. Verses 17, 18, and 19 read, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So just as Eve will endure pain, so will Adam. The ground is now cursed and only through pain will Adam eat of it. But what does it mean to say that the ground is now cursed? I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, there was a hex or a spell put on it or anything. Think of it as simply being the opposite of being blessed by God. To be blessed is to be under God's protection or God's favor. So the result of the ground being removed from God's blessing, it will now yield produce only through hard labor. So even though food will still be available, it'll be much more difficult to produce. Thorns now become a symbol of the cursed ground. And it's interesting that before Jesus was crucified, while he was beaten and mocked, he had a crown of thorns placed on his head. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. You know, I wonder if the crowns of thorn was just a coincidence. Just an observation but in response to Adam's sin of eating, so to speak, God mentions eating five times in these three verses where he explains Adam's punishment. And So this is definitely one of those cases where the punishment seems to fit the crime. So rather than submitting to him under God's blessing and favor, the ground will now resist Adam and will eventually swallow him up as he returns to the ground from which he was taken. For he is dust And to dust he shall return, just like all of us will. Verses 20 and 21. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So Adam names his wife Eve, which simply means life or life giver. And it tells us that Adam believed in the promise of God concerning the offspring of Eve. And that brings us to verse 21. It's one of my favorite in all of Scripture, and I'll I'll show you why here in just a moment. So I'm going to read this verse again. And verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And this verse is one I think we need to pay special attention to because we can simply just read this, assume we know what's being communicated, and then we just pass right on by without understanding perhaps a deeper meaning. Now, there are a couple of ways to read and interpret this verse. The first way is the way that's probably employed by almost everyone who reads the verse. And that is that, look, God saw they were naked, made for them coats made out of animal skins to prepare them for the realities and the harsher environmental conditions that they were going to experience outside the garden. As well, it also provided them a remedy of sorts for their newly developed shame. That's it nothing more complicated going on here. However, there is another deeper way to interpret this verse, and that is to interpret this verse as understanding that when God provided Adam and Eve coats of skin, it meant that an innocent animal would have to be killed or sacrificed in order to provide for them, in order to cover them. Remember, Adam and Eve have already made for themselves fig leaves to cover themselves. So from a Shame due to their nakedness standpoint, they've already taken care of that. They've already covered themselves. But here, what do we see God doing? What does God do with their attempt to cover themselves? He dismisses it. He rejects it. If you don't get anything else out of this episode, I want you to pay special attention to this. God here is teaching Adam and Eve that it is only through the shedding of innocent blood that they would be adequately covered. And I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to miss it because I think it's extremely important. Here, God is teaching Adam and Eve that it would only be through the shedding of innocent blood that they would be covered. In verse 15, we saw the promise of a descendant who would defeat Satan. And now we see that the only method for having sin covered is through the shedding of innocent blood. Is any of that starting to ring familiar? And this is important to understand because, as I mentioned before, we may not have literal fig leaves today to try and cover our sin and our separation from God, but we certainly have our modern versions of fig leaves. We have a lot more options than Adam and Eve did. We've got our church attendance. We can volunteer and give our time and money. We can just try to be a good citizen, philanthropy, altruism of of any sorts, and the list goes on. But we need to pay special attention to the lesson God is teaching us right here in the early parts of the very first book of the Bible. And that is, it's only through the blood sacrifice of an innocent substitute that you can be covered. There is only one way to be covered. There is only one way to heaven. I don't care what Oprah says. There's only one way to have sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God and to fix our separation from God. And that is through the sacrifice of God himself, God incarnate, the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In the garden of Gethsemane, just prior to his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus prayed three times, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Well, it didn't pass, which tells us that there is no other way by which man can be reconciled to God. And as Jesus plainly told us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, as we look here at the lesson for Adam and Eve and the coats of skin that God made for them, perhaps you'll view this scene a little differently than you did before and realize that what God is teaching Adam and Eve, what he's teaching us, is that it's only through the shedding of innocent blood that we can be truly covered. And this shedding of innocent blood, just like all the sacrifices and the foreshadowing that point to Christ throughout all the Old Testament, it's pointing us to the one who would shed his innocent blood on a wooden cross to cover you and I. His name is Jesus, and I pray that you know him. Verses 22 through 24 will wrap up this chapter. And 22 says, one of us? Who's us? Some people believe that God, when he says us, is referring to himself and the heavenly host and the angels. But I believe that this is yet just another allusion to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And for what it's worth, early church fathers such as Augustine and Justin Martyr, they also took that view. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our own image. Well, who was the us there? God wasn't talking to the angels there. We aren't made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. So why did God drive Adam and Eve from the garden in the first place? Well, it tells us right here. So that they would not reach out their hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know, we're all so caught up sometimes with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve ate from that we forget about the other named tree in the garden, which was the tree of life. And the tree of life apparently would have enabled Adam and Eve to live forever. So being banished from the Garden of Eden cuts off their access to the tree of life, which becomes, in essence, how their death penalty is carried out. In other words, without the antidote to aging, death becomes inevitable. But what we sometimes don't realize, however, I think, is that This was actually a blessing from God. I mean, God loved Adam and Eve too much to allow them to live forever in this new sinful state and be separated from him. And God doesn't want you to live forever in your sinful state either. So here we see that death is both a judgment and a release from living in a state where we are separated from God. And it tells us that when God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, cherubim are supernatural creatures, they're angels, they're a specific rank of angel. and They usually function as guardians of God's presence, they're seen flanking God's throne and some other places, but here they have the responsibility to prevent sinners from grasping at immortality. When Adam and Eve left the garden, seeing the cherubim guarding the way, there would be no doubt that they could not get back to the tree of life and live forever. I want to leave you with this thought. It's been suggested that when Adam and Eve looked back, they would have looked back on a bloody sacrifice that their covering required. And they would have also seen exactly what God had Moses put on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, which was what? Two cherubim looking down upon the blood that was there. And that brings us to the end of chapter 3. In the next episode, we'll begin chapter 4, which begins Adam and Eve's life outside of the garden, or in the real world, as we would say. And it doesn't take long at all before we're introduced to the first murder recorded in Scripture. I hope you will join me, and until next week, thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and God bless.